me in the book of Hebrews, in the first chapter, Hebrews 1, we'll read the first four verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of our God. Father, grant to us now, by your Spirit, through this your word, that we would see Jesus, that we would be changed by this word. May this be mighty in our lives, for we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Now, yes, I am using the same text that Pastor Willis used last week. That is not because he got it wrong or because we disagree. We had already decided that for the overview sermon, these were verses he wanted to use as the launching point and that I would follow then with the actual exposition of the verses. Our responsive reading, John 1 serves as a fitting lead-in to this text in the verses we've read this morning. And by the kindness of the Lord, it actually serves as a related text and lead-in as we begin 1 John tonight. This book of Hebrews, if you'll seriously consider it, it will increase your appreciation for the glory of Jesus Christ. This book is not a letter, as there's no author listed, nor are recipients specifically pointed out. It may have just simply been a written work. It may have elements of something akin to catechism in the early church, possibly even elements of hymnody in the early church. In fact, it seems quite likely this may well have been a sermon that was eventually written down. Whatever the case, Al Mohler said it this way, many Christians find Hebrews a very challenging book to understand. Most likely because Hebrews assumes a certain amount of knowledge of the Old Testament. Hebrews discusses most of the major figures, covenants, and biblical theological themes found there, that is, in the Old Testament. So if you're using a reference Bible as you read, and you see an Old Testament reference, you might do yourself well to take the time to go back and read that Old Testament reference. 
The language here, though, as it opens, what beautiful, powerful language. The Old New Testament scholar William Barclay called it the most sonorous piece of Greek in the whole New Testament. It is a passage that any classical Greek orator would have been proud to write. It's an extraordinary bit of writing. The writer does seem to have the cultivated instincts of a bit of an orator, a preacher, a speaker. In the original text, he uses alliteration. At least five of the words begin with the letter P or pi. He uses parallelism of sound. There's at least two rhyming words. There's a parallelism of sense. God has spoken. He has spoken. The writer was quite obviously skilled with language. Now, I know we have to be cautious here. Even the Apostle Paul will tell the Corinthians, you came to this faith not because of my skill with language, he will say in 1 Corinthians. I didn't come to you with words. I came to you with fear and trembling and the power of the Spirit. But at the same time, my brothers and sisters, if we have the ability to show and demonstrate the glory of what it is we're speaking of in language that is elevated, there's nothing wrong with that unless you're doing it simply because you want folks to think you're really good at talking. Now we've occasionally, all of us in a lifetime, have read authors or listened to speakers who seem pretty impressed with what they had to say and the way they got to say it. That should not be our attitude about these opening verses of Hebrews. In fact, here the writer stakes out, if you will, his thesis, his first claim. God has spoken. God has spoken. Jab Hacker, his great little book, God Has Spoken, same title. Sometimes he says, indeed we represent it as a state of virtue, as is man's way with his weaknesses, censuring our predecessors for being too definite and dogmatic and complimenting ourselves on being open-minded, flexible, and free from obscurantism. We must, however, be careful here. It has been well said that if you open your mind wide enough, a great deal of rubbish will be tipped into it. The author of Hebrews is unapologetic in what he says. We live in a culture where the unspoken assumption is that God has not spoken, or that if he has, his speech is indistinguishable from whatever the current popular concepts of reality happen to be. I'm always fascinated when I hear people say, well, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history on whatever issue it is. And I'm chuckling to myself, thinking, my friend, number one, you're so ignorant of history, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Number two, you're ignorant of human nature because humans by nature have been wrong, 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 and then when they got it right, they were even wrong. The bigger issue here is if God has spoken, what he says matters, what we say doesn't. Unless it echoes what he has said. There is an idolatry here that our opinions as moderns today 
our wonderful, whimsical, accurate, open-minded, delightful, worthy of all sorts of praise and adoration, and everybody ought to at least bow their head when we speak. Problem is, there's millions of us with that attitude. Far too many lords, far too too few with any sense of humility. We live and act as though God has not clearly revealed himself. And yet, what the author here tells us, what Scripture tells us over and over and over very clearly is this. God has revealed himself through history and ultimately through his Son. God has indeed spoken. Two major considerations. Number one, God has spoken before Jesus came. First verse. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Many times and many ways. Well, what are the times where God has spoken? Well, all you have to do is look at the Scripture from the beginning in creation. God speaks and things happen. God says, let there be, and the next action is, there it was. This is what theologians call the divine fiat. That is, when God speaks, things happen. You know, when I speak, maybe, maybe not. When you speak, maybe, maybe not. If you have any experience of what it's like to be a parent, you know, right? You speak. Here's the question. Anybody listening? When God speaks, what he wills comes to pass. God communicates. He declares. My friends, thus, if we take seriously the text of Genesis where it tells us that we are made in the image of God, part of that image is this capacity for communication, to speak and to hear and to understand. These are gifts of God. Other creatures in this world do not possess this. Now I know, well, you're, you're, you're not a very smart preacher. We know that whales talk to each other. Well, whales do communicate. Animals do have capacity for some element of primitive communication. But whales have never had a discussion on the matter of their existence. Do we actually exist? Chimpanzees have never collaborated to do architecture and construction. And I am yet awaiting a treatise from chipmunks. God has granted in humanity a gift that, by the way, naturalistic explanations cannot explain. 
human speech, words, listening, comprehension, written communication is an absolute mystery unless you're a Christian and have some understanding of who God is and what he's teaching. God spoke in the garden at the end when there's sin. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Cursed is the ground because of you. I put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. God speaks to Noah. God speaks uh, to Abraham. It says to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to a land I'll show you. Again in Genesis 15, 1, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. That same chapter, look toward heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He speaks to Moses when he calls him to be the deliverer of his people. He speaks to Joshua after Moses' death, declaring, you shall lead the people now. Multitudes of times, God spoke to Israel through the judges, through the kings, and to the kings, to the divided kingdoms, through the prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, so on. He did it in very many ways. He speaks through the flood, through a burning bush, through a talking donkey, through prophets, both spoken and written, through the poetry of Psalms, the practicality of Proverbs, through the odd acts of prophets, Ezekiel lying on one side, making toy models of besieged cities. He does it by writing on a wall, through a man's unfaithful wife, through a specially prepared fish. In fact, he'll speak through a gourd growing up overnight and dying overnight. We're fascinated when we read these things, right? Parents, don't ever miss the opportunity to tell your children the stories that so enrich the Old Testament. You know, I hear people at times claim, well, those are just simple stories. Yes, they are, and you're simple. You need them. Your children need them. You need to be aware that in that simplicity, God has spoken. And not only has God spoken before Jesus came, God has spoken finally through Jesus. It's fascinating, is it not? The writer does not begin with Jesus' nativity, but rather he begins with God's redemptive story, which begins in Genesis. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and then he makes these declarations. To understand Jesus, we have to see him as the culmination of God's saving purpose throughout history. In fact, I was pondering this this week as I was thinking about the flow of the redemption story. You know, at times we talk about elements of the scripture that are written in a structure we call a chiasm, which is a mouthful of a word for basically thinking of an hourglass shape, the shape of an X. That sometimes the Old Testament in particular will start with a kind of parallel. And if you've got the hourglass here that comes down, you have a proposition here or a statement. And at the end, you have a statement. 
and they parallel one another. And then the next statement is made, and there's another one that goes a little higher, and everything moves toward the center. In our thinking, as Westerners, we tend to do linear to one end. We start here, 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 here to get to here. In Hebraic culture, it wasn't uncommon to think about the ends moving toward a middle. That was a way to emphasize something. Now, I'm a little slow, so it took me till age 65 to lay hold of this. But there is a sense in which the structure of redemptive history is a chiasm. Everything is moving toward Jesus Christ from the Old Testament forward. And then as the kingdom enters the world, the expansion of the kingdom becomes what is in essence a fulfillment that parallels what you see in the garden, except it is far more glorious. Everything focuses in and on Jesus Christ. And the author is shouting at us, if you will, to see and hear this. The writer considers the Old Testament the Word of God, but he sees it through Christ. Two elements he talks about here. The timing and the terminus. The timing. These last days. Now everybody and their brother has an opinion about the last days. May I help settle the issue for you. It has been the last days ever since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, what about prophecy? It has been the last days ever since the first advent. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension demarcates the last days. Well, I can't make that fit in my prophetic chart. Here is my suggestion. Burn the chart. Last days was referenced first to the entire period from Christ's ascension in the sermon at Pentecost. Peter will cite from the book of Joel, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your among young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. There was also a reference further, another application to the end of Israel's centrality. To a people who had rejected the fulfillment of all the promises, the focus of all the prophets, the finality of all the types and symbols, it was the end. Last days, in some sense, included the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem within a generation, 70 A.D., the temple gone and the kingdom expanding. That's the timing. The terminus, the end, by his son. Now while the prophets were a great gift, and the revelation of God in the Old Testament a treasure, none of that compares to God's revelation, God's word, God's speaking now. That same Gospel of John from which we read the first chapter will say this, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, do you follow that pattern? 
the law given, grace and truth came. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. This description of Christ begins with a reference to Psalm 2, whom he appointed heir of all things. This echoes the second psalm. It also echoes the 110th that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. While the writer has an optimistic and hopeful view of God's revelation, he knew that here is the heir. At the same time, he's seeing that as the old way is closing out. There was a writer, a Jewish writer in 70 AD, and here's what he wrote as he sees Jerusalem being destroyed. In former times, even in the generations of old, our fathers had helpers, righteous men and holy prophets. But now the righteous have been gathered and the prophets have fallen asleep. We also have gone forth from the land and Zion has been taken from us. And we have nothing now except the mighty one and his law. That was how he saw it. But folks, in that sorrow and sadness, here is the glory they should have seen. God has spoken through his son. He's the heir. You see, a son was typically a significant heir to the family business or assets. He acted as representative of the father. Again, a clear reference to Psalm 2.8. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. While God had chosen Abraham to be the father of many nations, granting to him and his offspring an inheritance, the inheritance of the nations is given to the true seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. The promise is fulfilled to Abraham. The expansion and extension of the kingdom where there's multitudes of nations that enter, it is not by means of Judaism, it is by means of the Christian faith and the arrival of the Son of God, the one true heir. He's the creator through whom also he created the world. Now the writer wants you to feel some tension here. Right? Here's the first thing. Okay, who's the heir? Abraham's son. But he's also the creator. Are you bothered yet? It ought to stretch you. The heir is also the creator. Kepler, the founder of modern astronomy, said it this way, the undevout astronomer is mad. Crazy. How can you look at this world and think there is no creator? But that creator is the sun. Radiance. A reflection of sonship. The word here, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The word here for radiance never appears anywhere else in the entire New Testament. It is simply not found. It appears once in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. A celebration of divine wisdom. Wisdom is called the radiance, same word, from everlasting life. This connects Jesus to a concept of the wisdom of God, which is identified as God's agency in the world. He is the radiance. If you want to know what God is like in all of his glory, you look to him. He's radiance. He's the imprint. 
The word here is the word we get character from. He is the exact imprint of his nature. The perfect, visible expression of God. That which to us is an impossibility. How can the invisible, eternal God be presented to us in visible form? The incarnation. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Though he has become incarnate, he still upholds all creation. Paul echoes this, Colossians 1. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Now listen to this. And in him all things hold together. This brilliant verbal display takes us into deep water. Anytime you think about or talk about the incarnation or the Trinity, you have come to a place for reverence and worship. And brothers and sisters, let us never shy away from this. This is the wonder, the glory, the mystery. How does the infinite God become finite man? Does a teacup, can the teacup hold an ocean? This is absolutely impossible to wrap our minds fully around. And my friend, we are called to believe this, not just believe it, but affirm it. Otherwise, we risk the damnation of our eternal souls. Jesus isn't just man. He's not less than man. He is truly, fully human, but he is also truly and fully divine. Even as man, in that union of natures, not confusion, not a bleeding over, not some kind of weird hybrid, but the God-man, he still held the universe together as a member of the Trinity in his divine nature. Folks, nothing in sci-fi comes anywhere close to this. You're talking to a sci-fi aficionado. I love that stuff. I've read a lot of that stuff. Fascinating things. But I'm here to tell you, nothing in science fiction comes anywhere close to this. Infinite God made man. And there's a place here for reverence. <laughs> the story's told that Luther one time uh, was asked by a young theology student a very speculative question about the nature of God. And you know how theology students can be. They're always trying to come up with something to stump the professor. How do you explain this? Or what do you do with this? So this young man, don't even know what the question was, comes up with what he thinks is a ring-tailed terror of a question to throw at Luther. And here was Luther's response. I think an angel would be scared to ask that question. Wow. There's a point, my friend, where we should bow our heads and our hearts to his glory. Is the sacrifice making purification for sin. 
Sin is the reality of this world. It's a power in this world. When you read the book of Romans, you have to come to terms with the fact that sin is not just little isolated things we do here and there. It's not just deeds. It's a power. It moves in the heart. It moves in the will. It moves in the world. It takes hold. It's got a grip on every human being. It's an awful thing. Everybody in this room is infected with it. Heart is wicked. He makes purification for sin. And after that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The concept of enthronement at God's right hand would have conveyed to that people reading this the first time an impression of the Son's royal power and unparalleled glory, exaltation of power. Our representative in heaven at the very right hand of God when it says he's given a name above every name, that's probably not a reference to the, the, the name son. Son is more a title than name. Jewish Christians hearing this would have automatically heard echoes of Exodus. I am. What's the name? I am. This is the one seated. These last two themes of sacrifice and exaltation are the key to understanding Hebrews. The verses point us to the Son of God, to Jesus the Christ, and that's where we need to be pointed. Friends, when you read the New Testament, have you noticed that over and over and over again, Jesus is spoken of? The Apostle Paul, one of his favorite phrases, two words, in Christ. In Christ. Why? Because he's everything. I remind you that the author is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are thinking about scrapping this whole Christianity thing and going back into Judaism because of how hard it had been. They had suffered they had lost property, they would lost their jobs, many had lost their freedom, and a number had lost their lives, and they were looking back with longing to that which they had known before, thinking anything has got to be better than this. This is overwhelming. Have we messed up? Should we have stayed within Judaism? And the author of Hebrews is shouting to them, no, don't go back. There is no going back. There is nothing better behind you. It is only that which is before you. Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would see this, dear family, and embrace this. Far too often, we get our eyes in the wrong place. We think the wrong way. I'm always stunned now you all know this I, I read Spurgeon and I have to remind myself that he what to put another brother he had a lot more on the ball than the rest of us mere mortals but here are his words at the ripe old age of 18 and 19 as he enters into the pastoral ministry of New Park Street, which became Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. 
I would propose. And oh, may the Lord grant us grace to carry out that proposition from which no Christian can dissent. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I'm never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist, although I claim to be rather a Calvinist according to Calvin than after the modern debased fashion. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. You have there, pointing to the baptistry, I don't know where his was, ours is out of the bear. Substantial evidence that I'm not ashamed of that ordinance of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if I'm asked to say what is my creed, I think I must reply, it is Jesus Christ. I'm not saying to you, my friend, that other theological issues do not matter, but they only matter because he matters. If he doesn't matter, they don't matter. If he matters, they do. But only in his glorious centrality and exaltation do the rest of these things make any sense at all. We are not here defending a doctrinal position. We are here exalting Jesus Christ as the only Son of God, our Lord and Savior. And everything else is submissive to and supportive of that central reality. This is the message of Hebrews. None like Him. None near Him. None above him, all submitted to him, the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has spoken. And my friend, as another brother put it, expanding souls encounter an expanding Christ. You will never outgrow this. You'll never gain more knowledge of that Christ. God has spoken. He's revealed himself over and over again. The greatest revelation of who he is is seen in his son. What was Jesus' word to Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, you have granted us this day that we could witness baptism, the symbolic presentation of entry into life from death, of identification with the body of Christ. You have allowed us to sing praise and adoration to you. We have given our hail to the power of Jesus' name. We have sung, but he has failed. But he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for our sins. But he is our Messiah. We have made intercession in his name. 
you're seeing that you have spoken ultimately, fully, and finally through faith. May this be our confession, that all that we are and all that we have become and all that we shall be is because Jesus is coming. For it is in his name we pray.